At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board game podcast about, believe it or not, board games. I'm here with my very good friend, Mark. How are you this week, Mark? I'm doing well, but I have to take issue with one of the things you said. I have not been interacting with any boards for quite some time, so I don't quite know what you're talking about. Gotcha. True enough. True enough. We, we've been, we'll talk about keyboards this week and how they relate <laughs> to your monitor. That was a brilliant save. Well, I thank you. And... I'm dead. On that topic, I am I am just bored of it. It can be over now. I'm done. <laughs> I've had enough. This all being said, well, look, any, you, you any, that's irresponsible talk. Walker. I was about to say, in lead up to that, any any lightness we made is just to help us get over this trying time. So take it within stride, and we mean nothing by it. On that topic, I don't want to judge anyone. At least I try not to judge people. It doesn't come naturally to me. But I've been seeing some reports naming no names of even some prominent critics, writers that I respect and like talking about, well, you know, this might be the last week that I do in-person gaming for a while. It's like, why are you doing in-person gaming this late? That's crazy talk. Anyhow, be responsible, people. Or gaming nights. This week in gaming nights, yeah. we got together or, you know, at the convention this week. Anyway. Oh, yes. heaven for friend. So, we are going to talk about the game we reviewed last year. Then the games we played this week. News and why it doesn't matter. Then our topic this week, which is solo. Mark, last year we reviewed a game, which thankfully we didn't buy, called Coimbra. It's true. Because I've had no inkling to want to play it again. I don't I don't remember if I don't think it was a particularly terrible game. You as I recall were more keen on Coimbra than I was, possibly because of all of our terrible Coimbra puns. Probably. I have some I have a, a weak spot for dice worker placement games. I really enjoy them. I think that it is a a really interesting mechanic. You know, you have dice which get better or worse or, you know, can be grouped together. I think it's just a great mechanic. It seems to work. I just didn't think Coimbra brought too much to the table and and would get old awfully quickly because you'd 
you know, there weren't that many cards, well, it, if I remember correctly. It did get old to us. That was one of the things. Yes. You know, and we, it put, was... we put it through its paces for the review, and in the process of doing so, we exhausted any sense of novelty with the cards after the first play, and by the second play, the relative novelty of the of the dice drafting wore itself out, and by the third play, we were done, and then we kept playing it a few more times to confirm that we were done, and sure enough, we were. It's very much like worker placement. It's very much like auctions. It's very much like anything else. Dice drafting, although a little bit more novel than a lot of the tired and trite Euro elements, at the end of the day, can only be supported if the fundamental gameplay is exciting and engaging. And in Coimbra, it just didn't do anything. Agreed. But the art was was very interesting. Other than that, no willingness to play Coimbra again. And that's the game we reviewed last year. So on to games that we played this week. Let's start with the one, the last game we played together, which was Empires of the North. This is a game that I picked up because we both really enjoy all the other games that fathered it, i.e. 51st State and Imperial Settlers. And I continuously play this looking for where it was going with this, like what what new things this brings to the table. Why did they feel that this was better than what they had already put out? And I need to play more of the decks, but I've yet to actually see. I really feel as though that this is a step back and not a step forward. I really like your games iterating on themselves and seeing slight developments on a system, especially when the fundamentals are there. And I thought Imperial Settlers was kind of cute. I think that 51st State was where it really hit its stride. And then Imperial Settlers Empires of the North, which is a relative mouthful, these are Imperial Empires, Walker. They're not just any old empires. And they're in the North. And they're in the North. I felt it was, I agree with you, it was a step back. One of the things that really makes the system interesting in terms of calibrating your tableau is the fact that you lose all your resources at the end of the round. And having done away with that, I was immediately skeptical. And then sure enough, by the end of the game, we were both effectively running our entire tableaus every round. We had gone through the entirety of our decks. And this was just on top of the fact that there was no player interaction of substance. And in a system where you're going to go through all of your cards and then run all your cards every turn, then the only salient difference is in what order do the cards come out of your deck? And after playing it once, I might be willing to go and check out the other factions, but this is one of those cases where the asymmetry seems to narrow you. I saw what you were doing, and I saw what I was doing, and we were doing very different things, and that's that's partially novel, but it's very much like the people who criticize Root. Some people who play Root don't enjoy it, and they say, look, the asymmetry bottlenecks you. It forces you down a certain path. It, it sets blinders on you, and this is how you have to play. I don't get that sense with Root because you're interacting with all the other players, and that interactivity forces you out of whatever comfortable lane you want to drive in. But in Empires of the North, given that there's no player interaction at all, well, sorry, that's a bit of bit well, of hyperbole. I was going to say, there are two key areas that there can be player interaction. One, you can get these conquest tokens, which are not easy to get and which can be utilized somewhere else way more effectively. Yes, you can and, either do the smart thing or you can do the player interactive thing. Exactly. And all it does is, you know, tap one of their cards so they don't get to use it this round if you happen to get it done early enough. Yes, and I had a 15-card tableau was my engine. So tapping one card, I don't know where... <laughs> the other place you can... The other place that there's player interaction is you get to raid these lands over on this board. And technically, you might get there before other players, but you get to draw off the top of the deck if there's no cards. So there's you can't really, you know, beat people there. But, you know, when you, if you're, if there's a particular thing you need to get, then I guess you want to get there earlier than everybody else. Maybe there are, I should look through the decks. Maybe there's particular decks that actually 
interact with the other players. Like but- I say, I'd be willing to try the other decks because I really think that some of the, well, look, first of all, the card art is delightful. I found the little tableaus and the little scenes depicted were were marvelously charming, and that part was was very nice. And it's inoffensive. Look, multiplayer solitaire Euro tableau builders, let us call it the wingspan paradigm, fundamentally are inoffensive and are, are fine for what they are, usually. They just don't have much of interest. Here, the asymmetry gives me a tiny little bit of interest, but honestly, I, I really agree with you that every development change they've introduced on this path between 51st State Master Set and Settlers of the North has been a huge step back. I would much rather play the base Imperial Settlers, to be honest. And this is on top of the fact, just as a minor footnote to cap my comments on the game, given the fact that we've played both games in the series and we're experienced gamers, the amount of confusion we had over card effects is borderline unforgivable. We had this uh, confusion as to what a card counts as while it's tapped, whether you can do various other card effects with it because you can't do the action, but can you do other things with respect to it? We eventually decided yes, kind of, mostly, except for sometimes when you can't. Anyway, we had to check the, re- the the reference part of the end of the rulebook several times, and we often couldn't get the answer we wanted. So I just wanted to go back to the thing. If we do find one of the decks that does interact with the other player, I think that might be the reverse problem, right? Because just think in our game, if my deck interacted with you, but you had no way to get back at me, then it would it would be the reverse problem. I hear you. So I'm hoping, then, you know, now that I say, you know, hopefully some of the decks, <laughs> now maybe I'm hoping they don't. But anyway, yes, like you said, that is Imperial Settlers, Empires of the North. And I'm sure that they use that name so they could play off the popularity of Imperial Settlers, you know, to bring, you know, get more people to buy the game. But I'm sure it led to more confusion than bringing people into that game because it's harder to find online. Uh, two people that I talked to just thought it was an expansion to that. It wasn't a totally new game. Anyway, that's Empires of the North. Onto a game that we played together online because this is one I'm excited about. Crew, Quest for Planet Nine. On the topic of branding, I'd just like to point out, and I'd like to ask you this question, am I the only one who immediately had the association with Plan Nine for Outer Space? Yes. Okay. <laughs> this is not a game about the Edward classic. Well, classic is a strange term in this context, but that was my immediate association because it is a sci-fi game and it has Planet Nine in it. So Crew is put out by Cosmos and the designer is Thomas Sting. And we played this on Tabletop Simulator. Yes, we did. You can play this with almost any deck of cards. We play actually the tabletop simulator mod we used 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 Uno cards, and I'm glad we did because there are two mods available. I'm going to try to make sure that this doesn't become the you know the tabletop simulator podcast, but this is just one of those issues of of adapting to the new platform. There are two mods available. One of them uses the card art from the game, and has more or less unreadable cards as a result of that. In person, the cards are fine, but in the context of tabletop simulator where the camera angles are a whole thing and wrestling with this, that, and the other, the mod that uses the Uno cards was much more usable as a consequence. The Crew is a straight-up trick-taking game. Well, not so much straight-up as the fact that we played five players and it's a cooperative game. And what the Crew does, it has four separate suits and then it has sort of a trump suit, but the trump suit only consists of four cards, one through four, and the other suits are one through nine. And then it has a little mini deck that doesn't have any of the 
any of the trump cards and this is what you're usually going to do to do your little mission because there's not just a straight game you play with the crew there's all these different missions that you can go through i think there's 25 and they start off very easy and they increasingly get more difficult and essentially what it usually does is you're going to pick x number of cards off the top of the mini deck and then they're going to be sorted to the other players and those particular players need to win the corresponding cards during the game themselves. They have to win the trick that those cards are in. To give you an example of one of the relatively early, relatively easy missions, it might consist of player A needs to win a trick involving the yellow four prior to then player B having to win a trick involving the green six. That's an example of the kind of mission that you might have in the crew. And the the great part about it is if you've played trick-taking games before, then it's very easy to pick up, very easy to play. We went through like 10, I think we're close to going through 10 games in about an hour. Oh, we played more than 10 games. We, we went through about 10 missions, but 10 we missions. did many more than 10 games. True, true. Sorry. 10 missions. That's true. We had to replay uh, some cough, cough a couple times. I am not good at the crew. <laughs> but but other than that, I think it had, uh, uh, I had a great experience and I really do like the crew. But that, you have some serious that, misgivings, That, that being said, I, I just need to clarify some positions I have. Like with with when we talk to Wingspan, I have no problems with Wingspan as a game. I think it is a fine game. I just think the popularity it's getting is unjustified because it doesn't bring anything new to the table. And I'm feeling Crew is falling into the same category for me. I think it is a fantastic game and there's nothing pro- no problems with it. But if it starts winning awards or starts getting, you know, best game of the year, then I'm going to have to start getting issues because I think essentially it doesn't, I understand that it's manipulating like this, it's making a trick-taking game cooperative in the way that it's very simple. You know, the missions are interesting and I understand that it's a fun game, but, but any awards I think are unjustified in my opinion. I think it's going to win some awards and I think it's going to earn several of them. I think that this, first of all, I think it's very timely. If you've got a family stuck at home, then The Crew, I think, is a very, very, very good family game. It is one of those rare hobbyist games that has a number of interesting hobbyist hooks for jaded people like me, but at the same time leverages a lot of things that are so common in the zeitgeist that you'll have no problem introducing it to people because almost everyone knows what a trick-taking game looks like. Some people don't, and to them... We remarked on this while explaining the crew. Explaining a trick-taking game to somebody who's never played a trick-taking game before is surprisingly hard, but most of the time you don't have to worry about that. Here's what I really like about the crew. Yes, in terms of how you actually play the game, you're just playing tricks and there's this trump suit. Absolutely, there's nothing remotely novel whatsoever in that actual process. The two interesting things are as follows. Number one, the missions. And the way the missions work, some of them are kind of cute, like the way that it leverages this notion of, well, this has to be done before this, and this has to be done at the same time as this other thing, or this has to be drafted first, or this mission has to be drafted last, whatever. All of those things lead to a certain degree of variety over playing the game. And so you, one of the common problems with a lot of trick-taking games, especially the gamerly trick-taking games, is you end up spending like 90 minutes taking tricks, and it's just the same over and over and over again. You can get a little repetitive, but you have to do that to balance out the luck of the draw. Here, you have a game where it can last as little as five minutes, and if that's all you want to do, that's fine. You can move on. 
or you can keep going as we did, and we ended up playing for quite some time. So that, that's the first thing. The second thing, though, is that like many great cooperative games, it leverages communication restrictions in a good way. Communication restrictions are often very, very difficult. Anybody who's played Hanabi and has not cheated at Hanabi knows that a restricted communication environment can lead to some very clever inferences. For example, let me just give you an example, Walker, and let's see if you can follow on the chain, because Walker has never played Hanabi before. I have played Hanabi a fair bit, but only with people who don't want to cheat, and therefore we haven't developed an elaborate meta, uh, you know, akin to bridge players. Let's say that I and a mission of the crew have to win the green six. And let's say for the sake of argument, none of the missions are yellow. In the crew, I'm allowed to communicate by showing a single card from my hand and telling people whether this is the highest card in my hand, the lowest card in my hand, or the only card in my hand of that suit. All right. I have to win the green six. I show the table that I've got a, uh, a yellow seven. What does that mean to you, Walker? That you have a yellow seven. Yes, I have to win the green six, and I've it's, shown to the table that I have a yellow seven. It shows that you have no green cards in your hand. Exactly, right? It's little things like that. And that's just a basic entry-level thing. The moment you start getting into the more difficult missions, you have to start getting a little bit more clever about when to communicate and how. Because another thing about the crew is you can only communicate once over the course of the mission. And idiots like me will almost always do it right at the in, after the initial draw. But if you wait... If you wait for the, the, the hands to develop as some people go void, as some people... Anyway, there's a fair amount of subtlety in what is an extremely accessible and novel approach to trick-taking. Cooperative trick-taking, so far, as far as I know, is a universe in the hobby sphere that consists, I think, of two designs, Fox and the Forest Duet and the crew. So for you to say that it doesn't bring anything new to the table... And compare it explicitly to, to, to Wingspan, which is a Euro tableau builder after a decade of constant releases of Euro deck builders, I find very unusual. It was just giving me the same vibe, put it that way. Well, it's weird, like, because yes, trick-taking is going to be trick-taking regardless of how you do it. And usually, actually, the, the, the games that seek to sort of revolutionize how trick-taking works fundamentally often end up being very obtuse. But I really liked the dynamic of the communication restrictions and the co-op nature and the evolving mission set. I felt that it really gave a substantial variety to a classic format. Yeah, maybe if I play it more, I'll see. I'll, I, I know all of that is there. And I, I know all of that and more is there. But I just, like I said, I just don't, f I don't, I don't feel that there is enough there to be, you know, a game of the year or, or anyway. Okay. Let's let's move on. All right. Speaking of of these games being accessible, like you could have uh, your grandmother play uh, the crew, much like my next game, which is I played Fox in the Forest duet with my mother, who is eighty three years old, and she picked it up with no problems because she plays bridge, and there wasn't a huge rules explanation. It was pretty well simple. It said if you win the tricks, the token moves towards you. If I win tricks, it moves towards me. And she goes, well, how do I win? I said, well, you see, you don't win. Either we win or we lose. And then you know, so that was a bit off putting because you know, <laughs> bridge players would not understand that it is very competitive. And because your mother thrives on your humiliation and subjugation. It's true, at least. You know, when she threw the cards in my face the second time when I didn't play properly, <laughs> it, it it made sense. But no, we're we're one one gem away from winning. And like I said, when you and I played, I thought I'd go back to the rule books. And sure enough, uh, two of the pages at the end, it's one of these fold out rule books and two of the pages at the end were stuck together. So I was missing out some of the key elements of the game. It is a little more difficult than I thought. And I'm enjoying it a lot more now that I've read all of the rules, which is, you know, a little bit more helpful. 
I just hope that this game doesn't win any awards because two-player card games have been around for centuries. And I'm going to get... Are you almost finished? Yes. And that is Fox and the Force Duet. It is put out, it's made by, this person has a very odd name, Mark. Yes. The person's name is Foxtrot Games. I, 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 maybe they changed their name because they really enjoy designing board games. Sure. Uh, and it's uh, produced by Renegade Games. I played The Quiet Year. The Quiet Year is a game masterless narrative game. It's what's called a map drawing game. This is a game where you're not so much telling a story about an individual or even a group of individuals. You're telling a story more about a setting. This is a kind of category of game in which I think the forerunner is something called Microscope. Microscope is about building a universe. You sit down and you collectively tell a story about this universe. And I went into The Quiet Year with some degree of anticipation and some degree of trepidation. The anticipation was because The Quiet Year is one of the mainstays of the genre, and I very much like Game Masterless narrative role-playing. It's it's the only kind of role-playing that I want to do. The trepidation, however, was twofold. One of them was about how I would be expected to draw, which is something that I'm never good at doing, and how I would be expected to draw in the context of Tabletop Simulator, a medium which, as I've already expressed, I'm not particularly fluent in. And the second problem, or at least uh, element of, of apprehension I had, was it is very much not the kind of story I like. The kind of story that these games tend to tell, namely the Quiet Year Microscope, is about communities and settings. And I like ca- stories about characters. I am very much a... Th- uh, that, that element of more traditional tabletop role-playing games I'm still much more attached to. I like to have a character that I can sink my teeth into, either one that I'm playing or so- someone else is playing that I can play off of. And so my favorites of the genre are things like Durant's and Fiasco, which are very much about characters. And one of the virtues of Durant's is that you also get to tell the story about the community. It, the community is sort of a... Um, an emergent feature of the stories of the particular characters you're telling. So you, you talk about the planet, you talk about the prison colony, but you also get to talk about these specific people. The Quiet Year is less about that. In the rules, actually, uh, Avery Alder, she specifically says, don't get attached to characters. And not in the sense that they can die, but just this isn't what the story is supposed to be about. And so in point of fact, in this game of The Quiet Year, we're halfway through the game. We spent two hours going through half of the, the, the eponymous Quiet Year. We have not named a single individual. There's no name of anyone in this community that we're talking about. This is a post-apocalyptic story, kind of sort of post-apocalyptic. The details are left for you to draw. After a long conflict with a with a, a faceless group of individuals called the Jackals, you now have a year of relative peace with, in which to rebuild. And so you have to think about how the community is going to develop and what problems would, would happen. And you get all these story prompts through a deck. And the story prompts are surprisingly good but they're also much more specific than I thought they would be, which is useful for generating a story, but also means that I don't know that I want to play A Quiet Year again because all the prompts are going to be the same. They're only going to differ in the order that they come out. Now, you're still going to tell radically different stories, but the kind of beats, the kind of touchstones you're going to have are all going to be roughly the same. And to be frank, I don't derive a lot of personal satisfaction from looking at a map and thinking, oh, this is a story I told about an area of the world. I want to look at a person or a group of people and think about their personal identities, their goals, their hopes, their struggles, their values even. So The Quiet Year is not pitched to my desires. Now, I will say that the gameplay is much smoother than I thought it was going to be, and this is often a hallmark of the the game masterless narrative role-playing games. You wonder how the game is going to work at all, and they tend to work very, very well if they're well-designed, and this is a very well-designed game. But as I say, not really pitched to my my narrative preferences. So we're going to be finishing up The Quiet Year sometime this week when we're able to round up everybody. And if my impressions change, I will certainly share that. And for anybody that wants to try Game Masterless Narrative Role-Playing, 
It's a great tabletop simulator mod, not that it has to be particularly good, and it's very, very, very rules light. So go ahead and find yourself the rulebook, which is available online, and support every elder and Buried Without Ceremony, which is the company that put it out. I see why it's a classic of the genre, just not really necessarily to my particular set of preferences, and that was the quiet year so oh, far. I can't say too much because I wasn't invited. But what I can say is that... It was, it was, I, for you, it was a very quiet year. It I was did, a very quiet year. It was the expansion version. I did a lot of role-playing in my younger years. I have to say that one of my favorite role-playing experiences has been when we played Durance fairly recently. It is by far one of the best role-playing games I've ever played. Unfortunately, there is no mod for it, so we're going to have to wait until uh, the quarantine is lifted, and then we might be able to play it again. I just play it over any sort of voiceover thing. You don't really need... Uh, well, we we I would want to do a hybrid type of thing where there's a camera capturing some of the components, gotcha. at least. Because there is a shared record of all the characters. Anyway. Yes. I played another game of Radiant Offline Battle Arena. I talked about it last week in the context of our MOBA mini topic, and I commented that this was probably one of my favorite sort of component minimal card battling takes on the MOBA genre. And I introduced it to Dr. Stallone. Dr. Stallone liked it a great deal, and we're probably going to play it again. And I have to say that the fundamental dynamics of creature versus creature combat that we've been seeing ever since Magic the Gathering, that I thought I was pretty much done with, it does it really well. Radiant has a very, very simple system of blocking and attacking. The targeting and the blocking are really well done and leads to some very, very good tactical trade-offs in a way that games of this ilk often don't because blocking is either a specialized ability or it works in a very complicated way or it's just a big mess. But Radiant does it really, really well. And I'm now disappointed that I missed out on the second Kickstarter for Radiant because there's going to be new characters and new environments and stuff. I'm going to have to wait for retail, which, I mean, given the nature of Kickstarter, might be even before the Kickstarter backers get there. And Radiant is exactly the kind of game that lends itself relatively well to online play in that it is component minimal. It's almost entirely just cards. And that's about it. So I had a great time with Radiant. It only took about 75% longer than a normal gaming person would take, as opposed to, say, two or three times longer, as is often the case. And I am looking forward to future plays, and that was Radiant Offline Battle Arena. Speaking of Dr. Salone, we got together with you, and we played a game of Hansa Teutonica with Tabletopia, which is a different sim uh, board game simulating. Equally game. awful in lots of similar ways. Yes, but I, I still, I, I do feel that the game took less time than a normal game would. I disagree. I think we went through it fairly quickly. I should have timed it. We should time these things. I think next time we should actually get an actual time down so we know. I ha Look, here's the thing. Not spending the entirety of the time talking about implementation. The simple act of sacking. Yes, agreed. In Hansa Teutonica, you have to sack to get your components back, and it could be three, five, seven, or all of them. The simple act of sacking in person is I pick up my cubes, I drop my cubes, I'm done. In these implementations, even when you're much faster than I, which is not difficult because I'm very slow at such things because my computer is, shall we say, the terrible, it just ends up being this painful thing. It's like, oh, I didn't click, now I'm moving the camera, which is another charming feature of Tabletopia. I've played more Tabletopia, actually, than I have Tabletop Simulator because I played a whole bunch of Warpgate and... Trick shot with Artem Nichiporov of Wolf Designer because he he likes he uses Tabletopia as his, his medium of choice, and I, I will say that spending time with Tabletopia again reminded me of the virtues of Tabletop Simulator. There's that, but I would be shocked shocked if the three of us sitting around a table would not finish a game substantially faster in person than we did online. What does the automation solve? It, there, there's no deck of cards that it shuffles for you automatically. It's literally about moving cubes back and hey, forth. Hey, it, it set up my tableau for me. 
That takes a lot of time, Mark. Okay. That being said, I had a great time. Th- still think Hansa Teutonica is by far top 10 games of all time. Give it a try if you can. It is by Andreas Stedding and put out by Z-Man Games. What we should do is uh, play it again with some of the expansions for sure. 100%. I really think that going back to it again and again, which is something that I love to do, it's always a joy, but we are now three experienced Tons of Teutonica players, and I really want to spend more time with particularly the, the Great Britain map. Yes. Because there's a little bit of added complexity there that I think is, is best for experienced players. The Tabletop Simulator mod has all those things, and it is scripted and has better implementation than the one in Tabletopia. It was it was great to get together with people that you know very well to play a game you know very well in an alien format. So that was very, very, very nice. And I agree with you, Hansa Teutonica is a brilliant game, and it, that all of that was wonderful. And finally for me, Warhammer Underworlds has yet to fail to hit. Games Workshop game by David Saunders. It's a fantastic little skirmish game. There is a dedicated program on Steam, so you can play it. I've talked to multiple players and specifically asked them how they like the the deck building, and they think it's a fantastic implementation. They said there's tons out there like Hearthstone, a lot of places where they said this is on par with those and even has more easy-to-use functionality in it because, you know, it has a glowing outline on all the cards that are actually in your deck already, so you don't have to worry about, you know, repicking or, oh, do I already have that card in my deck? It tells you, you know, which ones are there and you can pull them out, put new ones in. And in a game where that's, it's much like uh, other Games Workshop products, right? Making your army list is is almost part and parcel, a majority part of the game where part of Warhammer Underworld is just sitting down and, and, and creating this this deck is also part of the game. Anyway, that being said, Warhammer Underworlds, give it a try. Fantastic game. Now, that's an example of a computer implementation that can actually save you some time and make things easier. Because deck construction with physical decks is painful. Making minor modifications is easy, but deciding, I want to try a radically different deck play style is very tedious, just pulling out all the cards, especially if you've got a good collection. You've been raving about this deck construction system for long enough that makes me think that I should pony up the money because it's reasonably expensive. It is, but it's, they've already brought out, you know, new factions for free and and a bunch of, you know, new cards, two what are they, injections of new cards already for free. So that sounds we've, yet, we've yet to have to pay for anything. Well, other Except than <laughs> other than other than the initial purchase. <laughs> the, the initial purchase, which right. is not. And I don't want to go I don't want to before I go too far. The deck construction is fantastic. There are some parts of the gameplay that are sometimes a little painful. Uh. But other than that, I thought they did a great job. It's it's more just because there's a there's a lot of quick back and forth. It's like, okay, you move and then there's a power phase, you know, play cards, play cards. And then do you I want to play a reaction? No. Exactly. Do I want to play a reaction? So it, reaction? It's that, no. It's that getting the person click to, to confirm. A click to confirm or just click to pass. It's like okay, you know, it's it's your turn to play a card, even though you're not going to play one. Yes. You still have to yes. click pass, and it's like ah, 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 kick the pass button. Yeah. Anyway, other than that, with all these implementations, it always seems like even when they're very good, it's two steps forward, one step back, or sometimes even three steps back. I remember when playing Sentinels of the Multiverse online with friends. There's this power that Santa Guys has. I love Santa Guys. He's probably my favorite instantiation of Guys. Guys is the uh, stand-in for Deadpool, but he's not very easy to play. He's got very weird card effects. So don't don't sell him as the card version of Deadpool because then people want to play him and then they will find it frustrating. Wait until they've had a few games under the belt. But anyway, Santa Guys says, 
one version of his power is put a everyone puts the top card of their deck face down into their play area. And then later on something else happens. But so the the, the person we were playing with, one of the Louis, would trigger this power, and then the prompt would come up, who should do this first? Well, the answer is, now and always, it never matters who does it first. It just happens. There's no possible card effect in the universe of Sentinels of the Multiverse where it will matter who puts their card face down in their play area first. But every time it says, who should do this first? And every time it happened, he would not hit the prompt. (laughs) Anyhow, sorry, I I keep saying I'm going to stop complaining about digital implementation. So now we will talk about the final game that I played in person, played the quest for El Dorado, the Golden Temples. And don't worry, when I played it in person, I played it with a member of my household. So so the the quest for El Dorado is Reiner Knizia's deck, foray into deck building. And I'd just like to note, parenthetically, I find it really, really strange when a, a designer like Reiner Knizia finally releases a gameplay, a game with the gameplay element that is sort of the hot gameplay element of like 10 years ago, especially since he doesn't play other people's games. What other deck builders has Reiner Knizia played? Has he just picked up on what deck building is through a, through osmosis? Anyhow, this is all very these are these are purely academic questions. I quite enjoyed the quest for El Dorado, which was the pr- uh, first version of El Dorado. Then there was an expansion called Heroes and Curses. I did not like Heroes and Curses. I thought that it it was not a good addition to the game. It made things cumbersome and uninteresting in a number of ways. But the quest for El Dorado: The Golden Temples is a standalone expansion, which is compatible with both of the previous versions of the quest for El Dorado. And the biggest changes are as follows. Number one, your starting deck is now very different from what it used to be. And I think it's all for the good because it makes early trashing much less consequential. And therefore, it's sort of a trade-off whether you want to engage in early trashing. That part is great. The second part that's great is that it's no longer a linear race. You're no longer going from tile A all the way to tile B. Now what you need to do is you start off in tile A and you need to pick up things from three different places and then come back. And this increases the opportunity to make trade-offs with respect to your deck. This increases the opportunity to interact with the other players. It was really, really nice. And I very much appreciated how that topography changed things. I've only played on the intro baby map. There are a whole bunch of maps that integrate just the new expandalone content. Then there are maps that integrate all three boxes. And then there are maps that integrate the first and third boxes. And so there's tons and tons and tons of variety out of the box, especially if you have the previous editions. But in hindsight, I'm I'm rather unsurprised at this level of quality because thinking back on other major deck building lines, usually it's the first or second expansion that makes a deck builder really start to shine. And the quest for Eldorado is no ex- no exception. I think the Golden Temples is by far the best offering in the line so far, by not a small margin. If you haven't played the game before, this is the way to start. If you have played the game before and enjoyed the base game at all, I think that you'll really enjoy the extra stuff that the Golden Temples introduces. And if you hated the game to begin with, well then, that's fine. You can go do that. So I really enjoyed the Quest for Eldorado of the Golden Temples. Looking forward to trying it some more. Looking forward to trying some of the other maps. Looking forward to possibly trying it online. But of course, the mod has not yet integrated the maps of the Golden Temples. So maybe I have to drag things so that they become maps for myself. Uh, At any rate. So those are the games that we played this week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. So Pie in the Sky is an expansion for My Little Scythe. So My Little Scythe was a My Little Pony sort of fan-based game someone had made from Scythe, and Stone Myers decided to make it into a full-bledged retail game, and I thought that would be the end of it. But apparently not so much. They wanted to bring it up to par with the normal Scythe, so they released an expansion that has airships and the two new factions, and it was quite a surprise that they kept they're still supporting this this sort of little novelty children's game. 
because children's game, like I'm trying to think of any other children's game that has an expansion. I think it's more of a family game than a children's game. I don't know. I haven't played it, so I, I really shouldn't say, but it, it was toted. No, Walker, you really shouldn't. It's toted. Toted. Touted. Touted as a, ch- as a children's game. You toted from house to house, but when you arrive at the house, you tout it. So that's Pie in the Sky by Stonemaier's Games. So I saw some interesting news about the development of the Ascension deck building game. Ascension's perhaps the first major release that introduced a sort of rotating market to deck building. Prior prior to that, it was always you set up these action cards and there you go, which of course then that innovation inspired the Realms games and now Shards of Infinity and all those other games. And now they're making a miniatures game and I will play a skirmish game nearly any, any day of the week. And Ascension Tactics is going to be the miniatures version of the Ascension game. So it's going to be a deck-building game with a miniatures element. Now, we kind of sort of almost had bits of that in Undaunted, almost kind of sort of maybe. And so I'm interested to see what, uh, to what extent it's going to be like that. It's very much sort of you buy a unit, and then you activate it, and it does things on the map. You also played uh, Sentinel's Tactics. Did it not have that sort no. of gameplay? No. Okay. No, there's, there's no deck building in Sentinel Tactics. Okay. And I remembered while Justin Gary of Stoneblade Games, who is on the design team for pretty much everything they do, I was reminded that he was the lead developer of the World of Warcraft collectible miniatures game. Now, despite the fact that it was A, collectible, and B, World of Warcraft team, I really liked the World of Warcraft collectible miniatures game. Yeah, I have nothing but good memories of that. It was really nice. And it had a really interesting timing mechanism. I think it's sort of like the Red Dawn sort of thing, like certain actions took a certain amount of time, and you went down the scale, and you... Anyway... And it was one of those very early versions where movement was, A, super important, and B, super minimalistic, right? You would have a movement capability of one or two, what I would call the claustrophobia school. And if you're able to get tactical positioning and something like that with any, without any of the square counting nonsense, I'm definitely on board. And I was, I was somewhat chagrined when it got canceled, but just this is just some historical detail. It got canceled shortly before they introduced their first raid deck. And since we're going to be talking about solo games later, I think it bears for context. At the time, I was thinking, ooh... A solo fighty game? How on earth could you do that? Because the market had not really seen stuff like that before. And I was very, very keen. And I remember corresponding with Justin Gary shortly after he he left the project, saying, how on earth did this work? What did it look like? And he said, oh, I was super enthusiastic about it. It's a shame I can't show you because I've got NDAs and all these other things. But at the time, I just thought, oh, what? How alien would that be? And now we're fortunately spoiled for choice. But anyway, that's a little bit of historical context. So I am looking forward to seeing what they do with Ascension. I like deck building. I like tactics games. And uh, Justin Gary is a reliable designer. So I'm, I'm interested to see what they do with it. And I'm sure everyone is aware Frosthaven is now on Kickstarter. It is the the next iteration of Gloomhaven. Now in a new, a new uh, area of the world, I guess you could say. The game takes place. It, it seems a little bit like... Uh, Kingdom Death Monster, you're sort of take, ta- really taking care of this uh, outpost, and you're building it up, building up fortifications, you know, building the buildings up, and and it seems a lot you're a lot more focused on creating this community than than the other game where you're exploring the world. It says it's all all back compatible with uh, with Gloomhaven. You can use all the old characters. I really haven't looked that closely into it, but. It looks as though they, there's really not that many changes, just a different setting and everything else. And I'm just sort of wondering, Mark, yes, what percentage would you say people that own Gloomhaven have consumed all the content? Of Gloomhaven? <laughs> um, all the content? Yes. 
Probably 0.1%. 0.1%. That is almost Off the top a- of my head. identical to the number that I got. So those people who already own Gloomhaven have all only consumed 0.1% of, of that content. No, 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 sir. That is not what I said. You asked what percentage of people have consumed 100%. And I said 0.1%. No, 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 not 100%. I said how much... The, all the people that have owned... What is the Haven. average rate of completion of... Yes. Oh, I don't know. I don't know about average rate of completion, but I, I'd i say that from our box, we consumed about 75% of it. Of the missions? Yeah. Like all the downloadable stuff and Oh, well, not the downloadable stuff, stuff and... the stuff in the box. What I'm getting at is that there's so much, I just don't... Why do you have to bring up numbers, Walker? We're very bad with numbers. I know, we're bad with numbers, but I'm just, I'm just trying to put some context on what I'm trying to say, is the fact that there's so much out there... And and I feel as though they didn't change very much. I'm wondering what is the purpose of this Frost Haven. Have you looked? Well, the purpose is to make five million bucks. Exactly. Thank you. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. The Have you looked at any of the new classes? Yeah. No, I'm sure they are. They are. They are very good. I have seen some of the new classes. I, I talked last week about the community campaign and about how they've released some of the new class information from both Frost Haven and from the new intro set that they're going to be releasing later this year. And I will always be keen on trying new classes. Give me a new class to try, Look, and I'm there. I don't want to make sure I, I'm not coming off the wrong way. This is going to be fantastic. There's nothing wrong with this. The one. What's the your one, point? The one because I'm just I'm just. I wish they had changed more. I'm just saying there's so much Gloomhaven already out there. I'm just surprised that there's yet another whole new world that's fair. to go into. There's a character in there that sort of like separates into two. It looks all looks very interesting. Can't wait to try it out. I think what it gets down to Mark is I, I'm trying to justify in my own head <laughs> why I should buy this game. People very often, especially those who are more prone to hype than we are, and we're not immune from this, talk about, you know, Instaback or like, you know, Shut up and take my money. I think this is the only time I've ever backed a Kickstarter without looking at any of the campaign page, and I've not checked out anything, and I don't have to. Part of this is because I did look at the extra classes that were released earlier, but part of this is also just I know the value for money proposition that Gloomhaven delivers, and Frosthaven looks to be doing the same. Now, I'm not. this is not to say that there isn't in new information that could change my mind, but all the information that I know going in make me very confident in my purchase. Yeah, true enough. On the topic of Kickstarter campaigns that are going to lose their mind, Ankh, Gods of Egypt, from Cool Money or Not, is going to be hitting Kickstarter in about a week from now. And I have to say, I am pretty keen on Egyptian mythology, and they seem to be trying to do a slightly more tighter job of, of integrating the broad thematic overtones of these deities' presence into the game. I'm, I'm a sucker for the story of Osiris. I'm, a, I, I'm surprised they're actually involving Amun in the game, because we don't really know a whole lot about Amun. So, and they, they acknowledge this in some of the developers' notes. Uh, Amun-Ra, we know a whole lot about. That's the Voltron version, where Amun and Ra did a special high-five, and then they merged together. And seriously. Sweet. That's, no, that's that's literally what happened. It 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 there was <laughs> it's a great thing about Egyptian mythology. Two gods can join together in a Voltron kind of way to defeat some powerful thing, and then sometimes they split off afterwards, and sometimes they stay connected, and there's sometimes you have the three different cults: God A, God B, and then God A B. It's great, it's wonderful. Egyptian mythology is rad. You should really read up on it. But anyway, I am keen to see what Eric Lang will do. Rising Sun was a very big disappointment to me, but I am still willing to pony up for anything that involves solid resale value, if nothing else. So look for Ankh, Gods of Egypt, later on this month. So now on to Kickstarter news that actually matters. Mark. That's not really our brand. In 1988, 
there was a fantastic movie starring Roddy Roddy Piper called They Live. <laughs> it is a science fiction, what they call masterpiece. It is a fantastic movie. Also starring Goliath. Yes. And there is going to be a board game based on this movie. And it looks actually semi-interesting, even though the company that's putting it out has put out nothing else before. <laughs> but still, check it out. I'm going to read over the rules just to see. It looks like it comes with special sunglasses, Mark, just like the movie. And you put them on in this day and age. That's a nightmarish concept that you pass around the same <laughs> pair of sunglasses to wear. But that comes with said, your own disease vector. Touch your face. This being said, you'll look at cards and either it'll change the picture so you'll be able to see who's an alien, who's not an alien. That's a legit gimmick. That ties exactly, in. Exactly, right? It ties yeah. right into the movie and it's interesting and I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how it plays out. Quick shout out to an underloved game of about 10 years ago. There was also, there was another game that came with sunglasses called Junta Viva El Presidente. And this was the dice game version of Junta. And whoever the president was, this was a rotating position. Got to wear the sunglasses that came in the box. Nice. And that's all the news and why it doesn't matter. Now, on to our topic, which is Solo. So, Han Solo was born approximately no. in 29 no. BBY no. on the planet Corillia. No. 19, later, 19 years later, no. he meets Chewbacca. No. No? No. You said we're doing Solo. Is that not what you meant? No. Uh-oh. Do you want to do a Solo podcast? Oh. <laughs> I will walk out this blanket for it right now, sir. All right. So apparently I got this wrong. What are we talking about then? Solo gaming. Oh, solo gaming. Yes, yes. Oh. I would say that our listeners will notice a reduction in quality from your normal presentation, but since you don't really prepare anything anyway, this won't really throw you off. This is probably true. Let me just type in solo and I'll just read off the, whatever comes up on the screen like I usually do. One second here. Okay, I'm ready. I would figure for a man who gives me such grief for the five seconds of Macross that I occasionally involve would not subject me to details about Han Solo's birth <laughs> and the various <laughs> fictitious dates at which he met various fictitious people. Uh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, you're not. I'm really not. So solo gaming is a very timely topic because this is something that I've seen a lot of people talk about trying that they've never tried before. I've been solo gaming for years. Walker has been talking about his various solo gaming experiences over the past few months, even before we started entering isolation. And so we thought it would be good to talk about the ways we approach solo gaming, some different ways that solo games involve their solo version, if they indeed have multiplayer versions normally. And uh, I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking up front about sort of my perspective on it and how to do it properly, because I find personally, and I know that a number of the people feel this way, that solo gaming done poorly can be a frustrating experience. And for me, it's about knowing what to bite off and knowing what it is that you're, you're actually able to chew. So for me, it helps if the component setup is minimal, if at all possible. Because as I've said many, many times, many hands make for light work. And if a game expects me to shuffle nine different decks of cards, and I'm going to have to do that alone, that's usually a bit of a red flag for this being not necessarily an ideal solo experience. Because you might think that it's not a huge difference between setting up a game alone and setting up a game with two or three other people. It's massive. And I often find that if something has literally nine decks of cards to shuffle. I don't really want to feel like playing with a game after I've done all that setup initially. I don't know if you've ever had that experience, Walker. Not with solo games. A little bit with the Gugong, but other than that... Oh, Gugong, Gugong doesn't strike me as too, too bad. But no. yeah, Gugong is reasonably... Gugong is probably, for me, about as as, as much as I'd be willing to commit to. Uh, the other thing, which is, which is a crawler to this, is you have to be willing to walk away. 
I find that when I'm playing uh, a game with other people, just the social contract and the social conviviality of the situation will carry me through to the end of the experience regardless. But if you're playing a solo game and you're not feeling it at that, that particular moment, and you have the luxury, which many people don't have, of leaving it set up, just leave it set up and leave. Just come back later. And a lot of people don't want to, don't really give themselves the permission to do that. They're like, well, you know, games have to be played to their completion. That's a great way to make sure you're miserable and that the, you get a bad taste in your mouth with, associated with the game. If you're not feeling it, stop, come back later or tear down if you have to, but just, you, you don't owe anyone anything. That's right. <laughs> it's just you. Yeah. And finally, the, the, the last thing I'd just like to note, and this is just going to color some of the, uh, uh, a lot of the things I'm going to talk about in terms of the divine, uh, design elements. And I, I don't know if you feel the same way, Walker. When I play a multiplayer game solo, I want it to feel like the same game. Agreed. Because I've played a lot of solo versions, and I'm going to talk about some of them later, that feel very, very, very different. And that's not what I'm looking for. I recognize that some people might prefer that kind of environment. Where it's like, ooh, this is just an interesting variation on the same thing. But to me, it's not an interesting variation. It's just like a pale copy. And when I want to play a game solo, I want to play that game solo, not some weird version of it. True, but in some cases, it's just not possible. And they just sort of try to incorporate what they can in that same sort of universe and give you some sort of a little bit of taste of what... I can respect that. And I'm not saying what you alluded to a couple months ago. Why are designers putting in solo variants? I don't begrudge a game having a solo variant in there. I'm just saying that if it's a very different play experience than the multiplayer version, I don't want any part of it. That's all. All right. Um, let's go. Let's go into some reasons why you would need a solo game. Okay. Okay. Hypothetically. Hypothetically. Well, imagine. Hypothetically. This is going to sound really weird. But imagine being with people was dangerous. Yes. Hypothetically. Okay. Hypothetically, like in some. I, I don't know. I, we'd have to assume. I guess the most plausible version of this is alien invasion. I yes. guess. And like aliens are patrolling the streets. Exactly. And you still wanted to play games, but you couldn't be with other people. Exactly. I feel it's a very good way to learn a game playing it by yourself like you said if it's a game that copies the actual you know uh, rules in the game then it's a good way to learn it so you're ready to teach it like we just alluded to if you're sick and you have to stay home it's a good way if you're trapped in the house for any reason not any reason any reason any hypothetical reason time people just don't have time not the fact they don't have time to play it's just that they don't know when that free time is going to be it's a floating window within the day and it's like okay now you know things have Opened up, I have an hour to do something, that's when to do it. If you're a new parent or just a parent in general, sometimes you're very, your time is very constrained and, you know, suddenly there's nap time or they're off at hockey or, you know, like I said, same sort of thing, window opens up. If you just don't have the space in your home to play normal conventional board games, a lot of these solo games take up a lot less table space. So it's a lot easier to play these solo games, like straight solo games, than it is these these larger games. Or maybe the current dislike of your group, you know, you know, stops you from playing certain games. And so, you can, you know, you buy them on yourself, you can play them by yourself and not have to force them to play it. I'd completely forgotten about this idea of, you know, the disconnect of your group's preferences. You're absolutely right. Being able to still enjoy a game, even though no one else in your region or no one else you know likes it, is definitely one of the benefits of solo games. And I'm not going to scroll through like these four pages of Han Solo biography that I had you know, ready. There's wait the song that I wrote for. This is him. what you. I never should have showed oh, you Wikipedia, listeners. I, I should have known that when he asked about Wikipedia and asked about Control C and Control V, I knew that something was up. All right, on to types of solo games. I think so. We've already talked about there are normal games that have a solo variant. 
And sometimes they can be exact copies of the game where they've made a, a way to play solo, or there could be, like I said, a like a, either a mini game that sort of tries to emulate part of the game or whatever, put it in the same world. And then there's straight up games that are designed to play by yourself, like Oni Rim or Captain Nemo. Yep. And so that, in, in terms of the, the solo, designed for solo games, I actually played my first Oniverse game this week. I played Sylveon for the first time. It's this delightful little tower defense game that, that's uh, that, that's solo. Is that is Does that have dice? I've just heard recently that there's the two most recent ones have dice and they seem to be the most interesting. No, Sylveon doesn't have any dice. It's, oh, it's, gotcha. it's, it's cards only. But, well, I mean, in terms of dice games, there are lots of really good solo dice games. There's Proving Grounds by Kane Klenko, which was kind of cute. My favorite is probably One Deck Dungeon. One Deck Dungeon is a fabulous solo game. And like you said, it's small small footprint, so you don't need a full gaming table. And it's very, very flexible in terms of how much time you want to put into it. And so it's a great sort of pick-up-and-play, low-investment sort of thing. And then there are the solo games, and this is primarily more in the war game market, because I'll just put a, a minor note about war gamers and solo gaming. Wargamers have been accustomed for, to, for solo gaming for a very, very, very long time. And the way that a lot of wargamers solo game is, I, I can't do it this way. I'm not this kind of wargamer. They'll just play anything just two-handed. You know, they'll play any game solo, even if it's got hidden information. Now, they prefer the ones without hidden information. You know, the old, the old style hex encounter war games. They'll just play one side against the other and call that solo gaming. I've done that a couple times over the course of my life, but I, I never really found it particularly satisfying. On the other hand, I know lots of other people who can play that way any game. I know some people who can play blind bidding games solo, and they find it valuable in that sense just to understand how the game works and they get some uh, uh, value out of that. In terms of solo war games, though, I'll just give a quick plug to Dave Verson Games, who puts out a, who put out primarily solo games and a lot of really good ones. I quite like Thunderbolt Apache Leader, but with Thunderbolt Apache Leader, just rem- I I really have to remember the walk away when you're getting tired of it kind of thing because it can drag if you don't step aside when you're not really enjoying it. And Warfighter, which is just it's weird. It's it's it was designed as a solo game. And you can play it multiplayer, and I even really like it multiplayer, to be honest. But to, to my mind, it's still primarily a solo game. Which is funny, because I, I have a, a story. I, when I first got uh, Axe and Allies 1914, oh my lord. When I got Axe and Allies 1914, that's how I, I sort of learned how to play it. Was There was a gentleman that uh, I was living with, and and we sort of set it up. And I said, well, instead of you know playing one side against the other, why don't we just, you know play it play it out and we'll just talk about what would be the most logical moves for these different factions i think we had a lot more fun playing it that way than we did you know you know butting heads the whole time yeah and and just to give some context one of the reasons why war gamers are so often solo gamers is number one war gamers are a strange rare breed and they play strange rare games and they often kind find opponents but number two a lot of war gamers the reason why they appreciate games is because they think sometimes with good reasons, sometimes with bad reasons, that it gives them insight into actual historical events. They want to see things play out. They're not necessarily playing a competitive or game experience. They just want to see an evolving state because they they, they find those dynamics interesting. Exactly. And that sounds a little bit like what you were doing with 1914. Exactly. And the other, the, only, the last uh, type I have here is any cooperative game is easy to be played solo. Not any cooperative game. Here's the thing. Co-op games that are very, very easy to play solo. We have, I, I commented before, in the context of how World of Warcraft Minis game was almost the first to the scene in terms of a sort of a co-op fighty type thing. 
But now there's an infinite number of co-op fighty type things. And most of them can play solo with no modification whatsoever. Uh, you know, some of our favorites are just to list Too Many Bones, Street Masters, Assault on Doomrock, Thulu Death May Die, Hellboy. No modification needed whatsoever. Just out, out the box, whatever. Yeah, Pandemic, of- Descent, Imperial Assault, Gloomhaven. Yeah, so then, then there are the, uh, you know, there are a whole bunch of co-op non-fighty games. Gloomhaven is weird for me. I don't like the co-op version for a very, very specific nitpicky reason. When I'm playing solo, I don't like to have multiple hands. I don't know why that is. It's it's so strange. Like, you can put card holders in front of me and just set up the two hands in parallel. Just something about that doesn't do it for me. Same thing with normal Pandemic. But then there are the non-fighty things like Spirit Island or Xenoshift. You know, no modification needed whatsoever. They have solo mode straight out the box, and it plays the same as, as anything else. Then there are games that have small value-added propositions for the solo version, which I really, really appreciate. And here I'm thinking specifically of Too Many Bones, which has a separate deck of encounters for the solo version. You're still playing the same game mechanically. It's just there's a different deck for, for solo version. And that part, I think, is a great addition. Similarly, in the... Pandemic version that we probably both like the most, Pandemic Fall of Rome, there is a solo variant that makes it a single-handed game and has this element of card trading instead of card trading with another hand, card trading with a tableau. Like a bank. Like a bank, exactly. And that part I thought was great. It was a marvelous little addition to make it more solo-friendly without fundamentally changing the dynamics. And then... I think slightly related to this category is the vast category of multiplayer solitaire or multiplayer solitaire adjacent Euros that have solitaire variants. I remember when Agricola was released in 2006, everyone's like, oh, it's got a solo variant. And now it's practically de rigueur in most... See, there you go. That, that That's an example of a French expression that I don't pronounce with a French accent, de rigueur. I don't de say de rigueur. Uh, anyway, uh, so uh, pretty much any U- Uwe Rosenberg game, Agricola will have Caverna Feast for Odin. It'll, it's going to have a solo variant and it's going to play more or less like the normal game because they're pretty much multiplayer solitaire anyway. And again, we like these games. Era Medieval Age was another recent example. Not quite as multiplayer solitaire, but definitely had uh, a solitaire variant that works just fine. 51st State, It's a Wonderful World. You can do drafting in a solo version usually pretty well. It's usually directly proportional to how much hate drafting there is. Like, I, I, I wouldn't want to play something like Fairy Tale solo because Fairy Tale, one of the reasons why we love it so much as a drafting game, is how much hate drafting there is. But a game like 51st State or It's a Wonderful World, both of those have solo variants that I played that are pretty good. And they work, they work just fine. It's a question of, of, of trying to get the, the, the best out of what you've got. Just a, as a final note before we start talking about the, the final category that matters to me, I would just like to put in a special category, uh, Vengeance by Gordon Kalea. Because it is a multiplayer solitaire kind of game where it is best solitaire because solitaire, it has so much more thematic richness. It already has tremendous thematic richness and engagement in a multiplayer version. But the solitaire version has the same gameplay, but just an additional level of narrative that just makes, just pushes it over the edge. And that's one of the reasons why Vengeance, for me, is one of my favorite solitaire games. Plus, and it would flow much better. You wouldn't have yes. to, you know what I mean? You wouldn't have all these breaks between the players. And I think it would just play much better solitaire anyway. Yeah, it, Solo is my favorite way to play Vengeance. And it just, it, it feels more narratively fulfilling, which is absolutely wonderful. You couldn't ask for more from a, from a Solo version of a multiplayer game. So, Walker, I have a question for you. All right, I'm ready. Let's talk about artificial intelligence systems. Because all these other games, like even Pandemic, you could talk about them having an AI. But the, the new standard, I think, especially for your medium to medium heavy Euros, is to have new rule sets, a new rule system to make games solo playable. 
Sometimes they seem relatively straightforward, as was the example of, I, I knew you talked about Gugong. Some of them seem a little bit more Baroque, as is the example, I think, of Gaia Project. I've not played Gaia Project solo, but you have. My impression is that it is a more sophisticated or at least more convoluted artificial intelligence system. Is that correct? I would say so, yes. What are your thoughts on these systems? I don't mind them. They, they go under this name of, of automata and they, or whatever you want to call it. And they, it's usually a deck of cards, and it usually... What it seems to be doing is playing off what you're doing. So it'll say, well, if you did action B, then use this column. And so it'll try to hinder whatever sort of, it'll try to sort of match what you're doing, sort of, sort of like slow you down or make sure it's doing something else so it's not blocked type thing. So I think that's semi-clever. It sort of feeds into my, my last point I was going to talk about where it's sort of like solitary, like pandemic sort of feeling that sometimes your fate is already set in the, it's, it's the same problem we run into in solo games is that the deck has already been shuffled. You've already lost or won the game based on how that deck already is. So some, for some people that just throws them off, you know, off the bat and, and sometimes uh, it works out just fine. Do you know who I blame? Who do you blame? Mark? I blame Volko Runke. That bastard. The word. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Slow down. I hear he's a lovely human being. Okay. Never met him. Uh, he released a game called Labyrinth. And Labyrinth was, I think, for me, the tipping point when solo systems started to become more and more Baroque. Now, Volko Runke's games have always been somewhat Baroque. Like his pre-Labyrinth games, I'm thinking specifically of Wilderness War, and certainly his subsequent productions, the coin games, he he loves nested subsystems and he loves nested conditionals. He, he's a huge fan. He would love reading a lot of those paragraphs, I think, in Tainted Grail Fall of Avalon. If you have box three of this category, but not box seven of this other category, proceed to this paragraph. He'd probably love that. But the Labyrinth AI system, all the coin games subsystems, I hate. I just hate, hate, hate. I have no enthusiasm for them whatsoever. And to a certain extent, this is also true of the solo work of David Torce. I love David Torce's design work as a game designer, but whenever I see that a game has a solo version designed by David Torce, I know I don't want to play it. A couple of weeks ago, I sat down to play Blitzkrieg. Blitzkrieg has a solo version designed by David Torce, and it actually has additional components in the box to run the solo system, but we're talking about very minimally. We're talking about a small number of chits and a, and a D6, and that's it. And what it did was it took a 20-minute, very tense, very fast-moving and engaging head-to-head -head game and turned it into an endless search for target priorities. It's like, well, the AI will place here unless there's this other condition, in which case it'll place here in which case it'll place according to this nine-factor criteria list. It will go to this region, if there's a region like that. Oh, there's no region like that? Okay, it'll go to this kind of region. Oh, okay, well, amongst those... And I was able to do it, but as I say, it made the game last at least twice as long, possibly three times as long, and it completely sapped any enjoyment I had for the fundamental system. And again, it didn't feel like I was playing Blitzkrieg. It felt like I was doing a spreadsheet. And this is how I feel about all of these Atoma once they start talking about things like target priorities. So, for example, in the case of Gaia Project, let me ask you a question. So let's say that the AI in this column system spits out that they want to build a trading post or something. How do you determine where they build? It, it pretty well is... is is most logical spot when you when you when you break it down. Sure, but pre-breaking it down. Say you're actually oh, yeah. following well, the rules. I have not... to go. I have to go get the book and go through the, the four-page summary of counting planets and, uh, yeah, and okay. how far away it is yeah. from other planets yeah. and 
Yeah, but and I, but it's, it's it is pretty well glanced at. It. it makes sense that it would go there, and if you go through the, all the steps that they say, it it maybe this four page summary of where to place the settlement is for people who are playing the solo right out of the box. So you I, don't quite understand how the mechanics are working. So it's trying to explain to you why the settlement would go there. Whereas if you played as much as I have, it's like, well, obviously they would put it there. You follow the little path that they did. Yeah, it all makes sense. That's where it would go. I, I envy you, right? Because I think that's the best way to play a game like that. And I'm not capable of doing it. Because that require that's starting to go down the path of that kind of, and I don't mean this in a pejorative sense, the sort of split mind thing where it's like, okay, I'm playing against myself now. Right. And that is absolutely the healthiest and best way to play. And if I were willing to do that, I would have probably found the Blitzkrieg solo mode great. It's like, oh, well, obviously they'd play there. But no, I was like, there are rules for how this thing is supposed to behave. I'm going to follow the rules, which to the point of making the game unfun for you is unreasonable. Agreed. But that's just what I feel trapped in. And I feel the same way for a lot of other games I really love, like Cerebria or Barrage, two of my favorite medium to medium heavy Euros of the past few years. They both have solo systems. A lot of work went into them, and I've read the rules, and then I put the rules away. <laughs> and done. How about how about the root? They came out with an AI system. Did you have a chance to read through that? I have played against the mechanical marquees, and it was borderline. It was okay. It it it, it wasn't. It definitely wasn't as bad as those things, but it, it definitely wasn't my preferred way to play. Now the new versions, where they have more factions and they've revised the original mechanical marquees, that I haven't messed with, and I'd be interested to take a look. I don't know. I almost feel as a root is essentially, you know, playing against other people. I don't know. Yes. How, you know, I mean, I think that's the... Anyway. So there are, however, AI systems that I have enjoyed. And I just want to flag those so I, I don't sound like I'm complaining about all of them. So there's the system for PAX Premier 2nd Edition called the Wakan. I think it's borderline. Sometimes I feel like I'm going down that list in Blitzkrieg and I feel like I'm just gaming a system. My primary problem with the Wakan in Pax Premier 2nd Edition is it feels very different from the normal game. It doesn't feel like the same kind of competition in factions and the same switching allegiances in the same way that the normal game does. There are, however, some AI systems that involve their own components and their own, their own uh, special rules that I think actually work. Warpgate by Artem Nichiporov, the solo system there is pretty good. I find it pretty enjoyable. The system, solo system for Mezzo, I talked about that list last week, works pretty well. You just, you draw, you do your action on your card, and then it does its action on the corresponding thing. You don't have to worry about targeting priorities, because the way Mezzo works is it's such a tactical game. There's almost no strategic horizon to it whatsoever. You're always just fighting region by region. So if a card tells you to do something, you don't ask, well, what region is it? It's in the region you're doing now. That's all there is to it. So that part's great. And finally, I just want to stress uh, in terms of games we played recently, I was shocked at how good the solo system was for Elo Darkness. The solo system for Elo Darkness has its own deck of cards and it has its own AI system, but it works shockingly well. It's marvelously simple. It feels like the actual game. It actually feels like the kind of situation where, well, how much do I want to commit? Do I want to pull out? Do I think I can win this fight? What are the odds? What you know? And you're definitely not going to get outsmarted by the AI. You're not going to have the same level of cleverness and surprise against fighting a human opponent. But as I say, it feels like the actual game, and it doesn't involve a tremendous amount of learning a new rule subsystem. So I just wanted to give that a little shout out. I, my, my list of, of solo games I've played is very short, and I've not had a negative experience yet, so I'm lucky. I played Onirim, Gaia Project, Gugong, and Clinic, and today I read through the solo rules of Scythe. I was going to give it a quick try today, but it was one of these things where it, it, it really didn't feel as though it was bringing anything interesting and was yet just more mechanical stuff to move through. When, yes. And I'm, I'm wondering if we're going to touch upon the fact that if it has a full app implementation where there's AI bots... 
why would you play the solo game? Like I'm, I'm looking at this. Okay, why would I set all this up? And <laughs> I could go to my computer and just have to worry about myself and have like I was at one point. I was like, okay, maybe I'll instead of setting this all up on the table, I'll just go and play a hot seat and and play with the deck of cards there. And it's like, well, why wouldn't I just you know automate the bot and play an actual game of scythe? I, I hear you. Uh, scythe as well, I think, deserves a fair amount of the blame for popularizing these Atoma systems where there's a new entire rules subsystem and uh, flowchart throughput of determining where it's going to do various things. I have played the Atoma system once in Scythe, and I thought it was clever but pointless, yeah, which, is, which is how I feel about a lot of these things, honestly. like I look at the kind of constructs that the Atoma Factory and Dave, David Sorce puts out for solo games. It's like, this is, a, this is a very interesting work of design that you've put out here that should probably never be played. I, some people really love it, and I'm very, very glad that they do, but that is not how I like to solo game. Just to go back, because I just have this little subcategory here that I didn't go through. When, we're talk- when I was talking about playing uh, cooperative games solo, games like Imperial Assault, Gloomhaven, and Descent, uh, there's some problems here. It does fi- uh, fixes. You know, how everyone in these adventure-type games, everyone wants to be the hero. Everyone wants to get the last hit in on the big boss. Everyone wants to use their abilities the fullest. And when you're playing solo, that's not a problem because they're all your characters. It's true. And this is directly proportional to how good or bad the rule system is at letting everyone do something. Like, I'm thinking in particular, one of the reasons why I have serious problems with a lot of the Zombicide games is it just seems inevitable that some number of characters are not going to get good equipment and not going to be able to get to do anything interesting. That's, yeah, that's the other thing I have here. Choices, when, whenever the group has to make a choice, either go down that hallway or that hallway or pick, save this person, don't save this person. When you're by yourself, that's not a problem. Spending group resources, you know, you don't have to feel bad or say, you know, be the guy that let, lets it all go and say, okay, okay, everyone else buys something, I'll go this turn and not buy anything. Guess what? You're by yourself. Or when the thing says, you know, randomly spread out the damage, well, that's not a problem anymore either. That's <laughs> all your characters and it gets applied the way you want it to. I've also been very pleased at, just in the terms of development of solo games, at the new frontiers that solo games have really been plowing through recently, largely piggybacking off of the success of the cooperative genre. I'm thinking specifically of cooperative dexterity games that can be played solo. Minara, I don't think, would be especially satisfying solo for a variety of reasons, but I played Seal Team Flicks, the only game that matters solo, and it's great. Uh, again, some, one of the chief problems of Seal Team Flicks is that sometimes you have wasted actions. It's like, okay, well, stop at the door and leave your second action because we're all going to rush through the next round. Less of a problem when you're playing solo. And also, Dead of Winter, flick them up Dead of Winter, which oh, is... Geez, I was going to say... Yeah, yeah no. you need to put the flick em up at the beginning of that. Yeah, flick em up Dead of Winter, absolutely, thank you, which managed to do a brilliant job of automating AI dexterity motions. Most of the time in in, in, in uh, solo-friendly dexterity games, you do what Steel Team Flicks does. The characters move using flicks and with dexterity actions, but the AI responds with dice. In Flick Em Up Dead of Winter, the zombies literally tumble out of a tower, and that is their movement. It's it's marvelous. I do not spend enough time playing that game, largely because I don't really have a good table for it anymore. I should just set it up on a floor someday and just take over a room. The world's falling uh, apart, well, and this, I'm in quarantine. I'm going to take over a room. Actually, since we have all this time, that's what we should do. We should design a, a uh, solitaire version of HeroScape Mark. Huh? Uh, that sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I have some. I have listed some games that I I really want to try. Uh, Sakatumi Walker. I have. There's a whole range of. Remember, as a child, choose your own adventure books. I know. Just lately, there's two 
you know, brand name choose your own adventure board games that came out, but there is a whole adult section of choose your own adventure books out there. And, you know, there's a whole Reddit thread. There's a whole, just check it out. Apparently they're fantastic. Sentinels of the Multiverse. Well, I want to try that a couple times. Solitaire. There's all those Sherlock Holmes detective games. Those would be fantastic. Uh, solo. You know, I actually like just discussing things with one or two other players when playing those games. But you're right; they would they would definitely work solo as a puzzle experience. But I I do like just bouncing ideas. Yeah, off but people. you could almost you could almost say, why don't we both play this game at the same time, but individually? Like, and, and when maybe when the case was over or halfway through, then you know have that sort of discussion. I think that would be almost as interesting. I hear you. That sounds promising. Mage Knight fantastic game solo. I've never played it by myself solo, but I can see where it would be a fantastic game. I've done it before. It definitely is one of those things where you have to be very, very, very careful about getting component fatigue. Because as I said, that's one of my bugbears with solo gaming. I have a wonderful custom-made insert for Mage Knight and all the expansions, and it really minimizes the setup time. But still, you have to be very careful about all those piles of tokens. But yes, it is very good solo. All right, so my last sort of wrap-up thing was I always find that when I'm playing solo games, I'm always trying uh, different ways to play the game. But as I'm doing them, I'm, I'm always thinking that this is going to be really interesting when I play it for real. You know <laughs> what I mean? It's, you know what I mean? I, I always feel that this is a subpar experience that when I play it with friends or together as, a, as an actual full game, then that's when I'm getting what the game really is, is supposed to be bringing to the table. I don't tend to feel that way, and mostly what I tend to do is I try to play those solo games that really give you some specific added virtue when played solo. Like the fact that Street Masters are too many bones is a fraction of the time when you play solo. Xenoshift as well. Or something like Thunderbolt Apache Leader, or something like Vengeance, which has that additional level of narrative when played solo. I will play lots of other solo games, and I have, and I've, t- I've, t- I've talked about a bunch, but I really do find that one way to cut through that is to have experiences that, if not at their best solo, give you something solo that, that will not give you multiplayer. And honestly, when I think about the period of the 80s and 90s, when there was pretty much only one solo game called Ambush, published in 1983, and that was more or less it for a very, very long time, such that somebody could hear about there being a possible solo or co-op mode for World of Warcraft minis game? How unthinkable! I now think about how spoiled we are, and I have to say, and this is a terrible thing to say, but I mean it, I'm glad this quarantine is happening to me now, not 10 years ago. (laughs) This is also true. I'm wondering, with more and more of these board game apps coming out, I'm wondering if it if there, if there will be a pullback from these solo variants coming out in board games because they're being implemented in this digital fashion already. I hear you, especially when I see the more complicated ones. When I see the ones with Otomo, when I see those incredibly complicated uh, flowcharts, I have the sensation that many people have more often than I do, which is, why aren't you doing this on a computer? I almost never have that for board games, but for a lot of solo modes, I do. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, Just Roll a Dice. You can reach me, Mark Beatty, on Twitter, at the games you like. And I'd just like to say, if you're feeling lonely and you're feeling isolated, I don't mean to be too sentimental or schmaltzy. Reach out. We might be able to talk about what it is to be a gamer alone. This is a hard time. Don't don't remain alone, even though you have to remain alone, if you catch my subtle distinction. Yeah, I'm playing with players on League of Legends. Uh, we're on doing Tabletopia and Tabletop Simulator and all sorts of stuff like that. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. And if you make me lose in League, get good. 
You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.